1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray one more time as we get into this passage. Father, we are aware this morning that we are in need of your help. We are in need of your help to clearly understand your word. We are in need of your help to actively live out your word. And so I pray for this particular preaching moment that your Holy Spirit's power and presence would be evident. I pray that you would um, give direction to me as a speaker and to all of us as hearers that we would have confidence that what we hear this morning is a word from you that has direct bearing on how we live and how we glorify you. I need your help and we need your help. And so we ask for it, not because we deserve it, but because your son does. And in his name we pray, amen. One main idea for us this morning, God has a message for his saints, and this is what his message is, grace to you and peace. God has a message. I have a word from the Lord. There is a word from the Lord from this passage, and that word is grace and peace. We're in the introduction to the book of Corinthians. I'm really looking forward to us spending time in Corinthians. And yet I think a lot of times when we get to an introduction of a book, if you're anything like me, an introduction might be something that we breeze over. Uh, I know I have a tendency to do this in my own Bible reading. You get to those first couple words and, and they just kinda, you just kind of get through them so you can get to what, where, where there's some meaning in, in the rest of the book. And so you just want to get through this. And, and yeah, Paul's just saying hello and, and let, let's get on with it. It's, it's easy for us to, I think, kind of let some greeting words slide past us and, and to miss what's there. And so we're going to try to not do that this morning. We're going to try to slow down and stop and, and see these words because these words are just as much the inspired word of God as the rest of 1 Corinthians. In fact, what we're going to see this morning as we consider that God's message is grace and peace, we're going to find out that actually in these first three verses, there are themes that, that are going to be fleshed out for the whole rest of the book. All right? There are ideas in these verses that Paul is going to spend a lot more time talking about uh, in the next 16 chapters, and, and they're, they're found in their seed form right here. And so these words are not just throwaway words. It's not just a formality that, that Paul is saying these things. It actually has a lot of significance. An illustration I thought of to to kind of kind of compare this to. I know even when we write our own letters, or maybe when you write an email, you know we'll write dear so and so, and then you then you get on with what you're saying. And a lot of times the you know dear so and so or hello that's just kind of a, a throwaway word. Uh, but there are times when a greeting is more than just a greeting, more than just a more than just a formality. 
Uh, I really enjoy history. I like movies about history. I like books about history. And uh, I even like musicals about history, like The Sound of Music. All right, so uh, whatever form you get it, if you think about uh, the time in Nazi Germany, um, there was a time in, in German history when you were expected to give a greeting to somebody um, that involved saying the words Heil, and you said Heil Hitler. And if you didn't say those words, uh, it wasn't just a minor thing. Because at that time in German history, a greeting was not just a greeting. It was actually a way to demonstrate your support and your loyalty and your commitment to the cause. And, and not greeting someone in those terms uh, would be almost a sign of treachery. All right, so in musicals like those, that sound of music or, or, in, or in other movies of the era, people who don't respond the right way are immediately viewed with suspicion and with doubt and maybe even more severe consequences. All right? There are times when a greeting is not just a greeting. It's not just a formality. It actually means something. Uh, and I think that's, that's a, at least a parallel to this, these greetings that are here. Uh, we, we ignore them to our own to our own loss, to our own peril, we, we skip these words. Um, these are God's words for us, and they're inspired. And so it's not just a formality. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, here's Paul's greetings, now let's, let's get on. And these are important words um, that, that will teach us a lot this morning. So God has a message for his saints in this greeting, and his message is grace to you and peace. It starts out, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is clearly the author of 1 Corinthians uh, the first word of the book is his name, and then he calls himself Paul throughout the rest of the book, and he keeps talking about himself as an apostle. Say, so why is it important to notice that? Well, first of all, it's important because it says that Paul wrote it, all right? So for those critics who are out there that want to think that somebody else wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're not going to believe the first word of the book, you're probably not going to believe a whole lot of the rest of the book, all right? So who wrote it? Well, Paul wrote it. It says so. Uh, it's also important for us, though, because Paul speaks with apostolic authority. Notice that he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. When Paul is communicating to the church in Corinth, he's not just communicating to them as an equal or as another church member. He's communicating to them as an apostle. In fact, as we read this letter from him, we are still sitting underneath apostolic doctrine. Right? Paul as an apostle has a lot to do with his authority and, and why we listen to him. In fact, it's why the church at Corinth needed to listen to him because Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. In fact, this is one of those themes that I mentioned you'll see in the rest of the book. Uh, the church at Corinth was beginning to doubt that they should really listen to Paul. In fact, they were starting to ignore some of the commands that he had given him. Uh, and they thought that that was okay to disagree with Paul. And so right out of the gate, Paul is establishing why the church at Corinth should listen to him. And he also teaches us why we should listen to him. Because Paul is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. God was the one who made Paul someone that we should all listen to. God was the one who did it. Notice it says he was called. That means that Paul didn't put himself into apostolic ministry. He was called. He was, he was invited. Somebody, somebody brought him to this. And he's clear to say, how did I become an apostle? How was I called to this? I was called to this ministry by the will of God. So it wasn't Paul's will that made himself an apostle. It wasn't his own decision. God wanted Paul to be an apostle. And as an apostle, he had a unique role, a unique place to be a sent one of Christ Jesus. Right? So, so Paul is sent 
by Jesus Christ to be, to be a specifically a spokesman and a leader for the church at Corinth and still for us today. So Paul, is, Paul has legitimate apostolic authority. He is called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Sometimes when we read Paul's writings, there, there can be a little, uh, it, looks like a, it looks like a disagreement because Paul talks a lot about servanthood and a lot about humility and a lot about meekness, and he's always commanding people. I mean, Paul's always telling people what to do, and he's going to do that throughout this book. He, so he's saying, you need to be a servant, and you need to do this. And you, Why is he doing all this commanding? Who, who gave Paul the right to say all these things? Well, that's an okay question to ask as long as you answer the right way. Uh, God gave Paul the right to say these things. He's an apostle by God's choosing, right? So there's no disconnect in Paul's mind from him being a servant and being humble and telling us as well as the church at Corinth what to do because it stems from his understanding of who God made him to be, of his role in the kingdom. So here's Paul. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. God set him apart for this. Also, Paul says, it's Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Uh, I, I don't know if you're racking your brain right now going, Sosthenes, Sosthenes. What else do I know about Sosthenes? I don't think I know a whole lot. Uh, and if you're thinking that right now, I don't know that I've heard this guy's name a whole lot. You're in good company uh, because I didn't know a whole lot about Sosthenes, and I'm thinking there's probably a lot of other people in this room who don't either. And there's a reason for that, and that is because he's just not mentioned a lot of times in the New Testament. This is not like Timothy or Titus or Barnabas or Silas or somebody that we're used to seeing working along with Paul. In fact, we don't have any passages besides this one that talk about Sosthenes working along with Paul. So this is it, all right? So that's a good reason if you're wondering, why don't I know more about this guy? Uh, it's because you don't have other passages that, that help you think about him as a co-worker with Paul. Uh, the, the little information we have, in fact, really the only other passage that talks about a guy named Sosthenes is back in Acts 18.17. And in Acts 18, we found out that there was a Jewish man named Sosthenes who was the ruler of a synagogue and when Paul was there with, during a lot of conflict, he was dragged before the Roman government and they beat him before the beaming seat. They beat Sosthenes. Um, he, was the, he was a Jewish leader and there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of controversy between uh, his teaching and Christianity and in the conflict that, that erupted, uh, a man named Gallio said that Paul could be excused and Sosthenes, he got beat. All right? The interesting thing is if that's the same guy, then some of that was events that led to his conversion, actually led to him converting to Christianity and then actually joining Paul. Right? That's just a guess on our part. We don't know for sure it's the same guy. We don't really know anything else about him. He could have been a secretary, uh, but we don't know a whole lot about Sosthenes. We do know a few things about the, about the chronology of 1 Corinthians when Paul wrote this. Uh, if you looked at Paul's writings, uh, the books of the Bible that we have from Paul in order, he most likely wrote Galatians as the first one in time. Right? So Galatians was probably the first epistle that Paul wrote. The next epistles that he wrote are actually 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. All right? So obviously our New Testament is not in chronology order. Uh, but 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he actually wrote them while he was in Corinth. Right? Paul, was, Paul was in Corinth. Uh, for at least uh, one and a half years on his second missionary journey, all right? So he has already written Galatians. He's already written First and Second Thessalonians from Corinth. He's already spent an amount of time at Corinth. He's now on his third missionary journey. 
And so on his third missionary journey, Paul writes to the people in Corinth. And he actually wrote this book while he was in Ephesus. All right, so right now, if you're, if you're wanting to put this in some kind of time standpoint, third missionary journey, Paul is in Ephesus right now. We, we see clues from that from like later on in the book. In chapter 16, he'll talk about being in Ephesus. You can match that with Acts 19. Basically, it puts us in a general time frame of being somewhere in 53 to 55 AD. All right, so that's, that's where we are time-wise. And really, 1 Corinthians is actually the second of four letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, did you know that? 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, sort of, and 2 Corinthians is kind of like 4 Corinthians. But we don't have those other letters. Uh, the first letter that we have is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9. He says, I already wrote to you previously. And then we find out in 2 Corinthians that, that Paul had written a tearful letter uh, that came in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And yet, these two books, 1 and 2 Corinthians, are the only ones that the Holy Spirit chose to inspire as well as uh, to preserve for us. And so we have them as 1 and 2 Corinthians. Who does he write to? Well, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And here again, I think Paul is already pointing to themes that we're going to see later on. He calls it the church of God that's in Corinth. He wants to be clear that, that the church that's there it belongs to God. This is God's church. It's not Paul's church, like some were, are going to accuse him of. You're just out to make this your church. And he's saying, it's not my church. It's God's church. And there were some Corinthians that were out to own the church as their own, and they wanted to make it what they wanted it to be. And he's saying, it's not your church either. It's the church of God. Right? It's the church of God. He says, it's the church of God that is in Corinth. Um, I want to talk to you just a little bit about Corinth. Um, but before I do that, I want to talk about why it matters. Uh, because I don't know what your favorite subjects were in, in school, but maybe history wasn't one of them. And so you're saying, why on a Sunday morning are we going to talk about Corinth, an ancient city? What, what's the value of a little, of a little history lesson? Uh, I, th I think this is what the value is, and this is, this is why it matters and why I'm willing to spend some time doing this in a sermon. Um, God chose to give us his word this way. Right? God, think about this. God could have given us his word in, in, in any number of, of ways. He could, have, he could have done it on video, right? He, he could have done a movie form of his word. Instead, he chose to write it all down. But even when it comes to writing it all down, what God could have done when he gave us the Bible is just given us a bullet list of statements, right? He could have said, I am three in one. There is a son. Uh, you should go to church. You, I mean, he could have just given this, this bullet list of boom, 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 boom. It would be like a grocery list. He could have given us a recipe book, all right? So uh, we, we could be getting together and going, all right, um, you know, I've been having some trouble with the kids this week. Uh, let's open up the recipe book to kids. Okay, step one, you need to do this. Step two, you know, do this. Step three, and then presto, you've got the exact kids that you want. Well, that's not how our Bibles work, right? Uh, our, our Bibles come to us in a historical context. They, they come to us in real letter form. That's how God chose to give us this book. He didn't choose to give us a recipe book. He didn't choose to give us a dictionary. He didn't choose to give us an encyclopedia. He chose to give us his word in a way that's directly connected to history, to, so real life. Uh, Paul is writing to very real people. So Paul is a real person at a real time in church history, and he's writing to very real people. And, and I think that sometimes it's easy to lose that sense when we're reading our Bibles. Uh, we put the Bible in this like, uh, it's this spiritual theological textbook, 
And sometimes we divorce that from it actually, these things happened in history. And if we do that, I think we're actually going to lose meaning. Because if we're going to discover what God wants us to discover in the book of 1 Corinthians, then we're going to have to work hard at discovering why he said it in the first place. So why is Paul talking to the Corinthians? What's going on in this church? That's how we're actually going to find the meaning for us. So we don't find the meaning by creating it in 1 Corinthians. We say, well, why was it written? What's it there for? And to do that, we have to care about the history and the moment that is there. All right? So our job, again, I know you've heard us say this before, but our job is not to get the text into our day first. Our job is to get back and say, in the day that it was written, what was it for? And then we can make application from there. Okay? So that's why a little history lesson matters. Uh, I hope this won't bore you. I hope it will help you. Um, especially because the letter of 1 Corinthians is even a more occasional letter than others. Um, this, this particular book is full of Paul reacting to very specific circumstances. All right, we're going to find out really soon that, first of all, Paul heard a report about the church at Corinth that causes him to react. All right? He heard it from Chloe's people, he says. So he heard something about the church, and so he's writing to them. It also turns out that the church at Corinth had written Paul a letter asking him to clarify some things. And so he's going to go on through the rest of the book, and he's answering their letter. So that's what it is. The book of Corinthians is, I heard a report, and I want to deal with it. I also have your letter, and I'm going to answer it. And so we, so we have to be able to know what's going on from the historical setting, and that will actually help us see what's going on in this book that's dealing with very specific circumstances. So uh, Corinth is in Greece. Uh, it's on an isthmus. I'm sure you all remember from geography class that an isthmus is a narrow strip of land connecting two pieces of land with seas on either side. I'm sure you remember that. Uh, Isthmus, uh, it connects uh, the Greek mainland to a peninsula below it. Uh, It has the Aegean Sea to the east and the Ionian Sea to the west. And so what that means, why why do we have to care about these seas? Well, what it means is it's a crucial port location um, for goods that will be coming from the west from places like Italy. So Italy is to the west of Corinth, uh, going to places like Asia, which is to the east of Corinth. All right, so it's this narrow strip of land, and it was really hard for boats to sail the whole way around the whole thing. And so it was a lot easier if you could take a shortcut right through Corinth. In fact, they tried to do some things like cut a canal through this isthmus, and it, it never worked out. In fact, they never got it done until the 19th century to get this canal cut through. But they came up with other plans of how they're going to get all their goods from one side to the other. So they set up ports uh, on one side of the isthmus and on the other, and so they'd unload their goods on one, carry them across about five miles stretch to the other side and put them on another boat on the other side and ferry it back and forth. And I thought this was really neat. Uh, maybe you can call me a nerd if you want to call me a nerd. That's fine. But uh, what they did is they made this little, uh, this road that was, it was a paved road and, and they would actually take a smaller ship and they would put it up basically on, on logs or planks and they would actually roll the ship the whole five miles from one side to the other. So you roll it across and then you take your, you know, take your log and put it on the other side and they would actually roll a ship the whole way across the land if it was small enough. So they were coming up with all kinds of ways that they could get their goods from one side to the other. And what that meant was Corinth was a bustling, busy place. It was a strategic location. It was, it was so strategic that... Uh, after the Romans had conquered and destroyed Corinth, which of course was a, a Greek city, uh, the Romans came in about 146 before Christ and they destroyed it, but it was so valuable that they built it back up again. And, and so now it's a Roman city. So in the day of Paul, we're talking about Corinth as a Roman city, not a Greek city, it's a Roman city. It was a place that was full of gods, full of sexual immorality, and full of commercialism. 
Those three things defined Corinth. They were full of gods. They had at least 26 sacred places like a temple or a shrine that we've been able to, to discover. Uh, the thing about the Romans is that they would just adopt the gods of whoever people they conquered and add them to the mix. And so the Romans were fine with there being lots of gods. Just add them in. And so you've got all kinds of for false worship all over the city of Corinth, and we're going to see that later on in the book as well. You also have incredibly rampant sexual immorality in Corinth. Uh, you, you had um, prostitutes who actually worked at the temples there. Uh, it was part of their religious worship. On top of that, you just have a seaport and the nature of all that would go into that. Uh, it was so bad in Corinth, they actually coined a word. Right? We don't, I don't often say Greek words from the pulpit, but they actually came up with the word Corinthiazomai. All right? that was, that was, they coined that word to, to be like a Corinthian. It, it meant to be someone who was immoral. That, that's what it meant. So to call somebody a Corinthian, that's, that's how we would say in our day, to call someone a Corinthian is basically slang for you're someone who is, who is really immoral. That's how bad it was in Corinth. And so Paul is bringing the gospel to bear on people who are living in a horrific city when it comes to immorality. Full of gods, full of immorality. And lastly, it was full of commercialism. So there was vast amounts of wealth in Corinth um, because of it being a seaport, um, because of all the, all the goods that were coming and going from really wealthy places like Italy to Asia. There was all kinds of money in Corinth. And one unique thing about Corinth is unlike places like Rome, it wasn't, it wasn't built on people who own land. All right? People came to Corinth and they made their own fortunes. All right? Corinth, you could basically think of it almost as the America of the day. You, you went there and you, you made or broke yourself. All right? So if you did really well financially, you would become powerful. It wasn't based on what your family name was, unlike other places in Rome. It wasn't based on how much land you had. It was totally built on how well you did as an individual. And so what that did is it, is it bred this commercialism uh, in, in Corinth. It bred this individualism. It bred this pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It, it bred this American dream. I, I mean, Corinthian dream. Uh, same thing. All right, that's exactly Corinth. It's, it's the American dream. You, it's, the, it's the Corinthian dream. Like, you go there, and, and you make your own way. All right? Ancient writers called it the bridge of the sea. They said it was prosperous and rich and always great and wealthy. Corinth is an extremely vital city, and yet it's full of sin. Some people have said it is, it is at one time the New York, the L.A., and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was the playground. It was the business ground. It was crucial city. Money brought people. And people brought sin, and Paul brought the gospel. So individualism, arrogance, ungospel behavior, accommodation of the gospel, all of them get challenged in the book of 1 Corinthians because of the kind of people that Paul is writing to. And I think just that little bit of information helps prime us, it helps inform us of what we're going to find out in the book of 1 Corinthians. Okay, so that's Corinth. What Paul does is he writes to the people of Corinth to a unique group of people. He says it's to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to people that have been set apart in Jesus Christ. These are, these are people who are called to be saints in a wicked, vile city. One commentator uh, said this. I thought it was really helpful. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. All right, what the church in Corinth needs is drastic surgery, but Paul's got to do that in a way that doesn't destroy the church. 
They're the church in Corinth, but they got a lot of Corinth in them. And so Paul has to deal with these things. He says that you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. He reminds them who it was that set them apart. It wasn't Paul baptizing them that set them apart. It was the sanctifying work of Christ Jesus. He says they're called to be saints. So just like Paul said he was called to be an apostle, he says the people in the church in Corinth were called to be saints. I think, I think it's important for us to notice that just like Paul didn't make himself an apostle, the, the Corinthian Christians didn't make themselves Christians, right? They're not the ones who made themselves saints. They were called to be saints. Christ did a miraculous saving work in the Corinthians He sanctified them. He set them apart. He was the one who called them, and he called them to be saints. He called them to holiness. So the Corinthians are supposed to be God's set-apart people reflecting his character and holiness. The problem is they're not doing that really well at the moment. And so Paul's going to spend a lot of time in the book of 1 Corinthians talking about holiness. He's going to talk about issues like sexual immorality. He's going he's to talk about things like um, how the church works. He's going he's to talk about going to court. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about some very practical issues because the, the church at Corinth are supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to belong to Christ, and that means you're supposed to look holy, and they're not. So that's just another theme that's here in these verses that he's going to play out. All right? But a, another theme that Paul is going to play out is that the church at Corinth is not alone. It's not a church made out of individuals that get their own way. All right? There is a big problem in the church in Corinth with divisiveness. There are people that are fighting one another because they want their own way. And even here in the introduction, Paul says, you've been called to be saints, but notice that they're not saints by themselves. It says you've been called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that there are other Christians out there who also follow the same Lord who are calling on him, who are praying to him, who have been set apart by him. So Paul's not saying, I'm writing to all those people who are also Christians. He's reminding the Corinthians, I'm writing to you, but I'm writing to you and remember that you're together with everyone out there who is calling on the name of Christ. So the church of Corinth is not on an island, even if they might feel that way. They are together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's quick to point out, that that same Lord Jesus Christ, he's their Lord and he's our Lord, all right? Lord Jesus Christ is the unifying, he's the name that brings a church at Corinth and anybody else at every other place, he brings them together. The church at Corinth is starting to fragment and fall apart. Paul's pointing them to Jesus and saying, Christ is the one who holds us all together, all right? That brings us really to what I think is the main, the main point for us this morning. Uh, God has... God has a message for you this morning. He had a message for the Corinthians, and this was his message, grace to you and peace. You could could just put quote marks around verse number three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is is an amazing verse. One, because Paul Paul is without apology and with authority saying, I'm I am bringing God's message to you. I I am telling you what exactly God's words. God's words to you exactly are grace to you and peace. 
in this verse, Paul is acting just like an Old Testament prophet who would say, thus saith the Lord, and then he would spell out, this is, this is exactly what God says. And that's what Paul says he's doing. I'm saying, thus says the Lord, grace to you and peace. Paul is speaking for God. Again, how could Paul be so audacious? How, how, how could he be so arrogant to say that he can speak for God? God set him apart to be an apostle. And so Paul is actually saying exactly what God wanted him to say. And what God wanted him to say was grace to you and peace. Why is that a remarkable word? Why, why, is, that, why, why is that so surprising? Well, it's surprising to us and to you if you're familiar with what comes in the rest of the letter, right? If you know what was actually going on at the church in Corinth. Uh, you had every manner of, of sexual sin in the church in Corinth. Uh, you, you had people that were dying because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an inappropriate way. You had people that were taking each other to court. Uh, you had people that were coming to the Lord's Supper drunk. You, uh, you've got all kinds of problems. You have people in the church at Corinth who are denying Christ's resurrection. <laughs> I mean, you've got major doctrinal, practical, behavioral problems at the church in Corinth. I mean, huge issues, not, not just little baby, we just need to tweak this here and there. You've got major issues. And yet, God comes with a message to his saints. And I think this is an encouraging word for us. Because God's message for his saints is not doom and gloom and, and wrath and war. God comes to a church of saints who are struggling with sin, who are in a wicked city, who are battling sin in their lives, and he comes to them and he says, grace to you and peace. And that's his message. And that's an encouraging word for us if you're sitting out there this morning going, I know that I'm battling with sin in my life. And I know that I failed last week. And I know that I'm not perfect. And I know that our church isn't perfect. And if you're saying those things, then God has a good message for you this morning, just like he did for the church at Corinth. Because his message is this, grace and peace. How, how, can, how can that be God's message to a church so full of so much problems? It's grace to you and peace because it comes from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's message is grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. John said the same thing. When he wrote to us, he said that Jesus Christ came and he was full of grace and truth. And so God has kindness for his saints. He has favor that they don't deserve based on the person of Jesus Christ. He, he says, I have grace to you and my message is going to be grace to you. This is... I think it highlights the amazing grace of God when we understand what was going on in the church at Corinth, that he could say grace to you. God's grace is his giving himself mercifully and bountifully in Christ. One person has described grace as nothing is deserved and nothing can be achieved. Nothing is deserved and nothing can be achieved and that is a good word for the church at Corinth. And that is a good word for us because God's message doesn't come to them and say, you need, to deserve, you need to work a little harder to deserve better. 
You need, you need to achieve a little bit more before I'm going to be pleased with you as a church. You, you, need, you need to perform. His message is constantly going to be pointing them to Jesus Christ and finding that his achievements and his accomplishments are the basis of God's favor to us. And yes, there are serious issues that need to be addressed at the church in Corinth, just like there might be serious issues to address in our own hearts. But God's message is, that's not on the basis of your performance. It's on the basis of Jesus Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. Christ's message for us this morning is grace. It is kindness. It's the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. This is the same grace that we say, by grace we've been saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that none of us can boast. This is our God. He is a gracious God. He's being gracious to the church at Corinth, and he's He has that same grace for us. So this is an amazing word that he says, grace to you. He also says, peace. God's message to the church at Corinth is peace. And he's writing to a church full of warfare. They are fighting one another at every turn, even to the level of going to court with one another. And God says, I have a message of, of, of peace. In other words, God's way of living, that's the that's that's where we can find wholeness or, or well-being or satisfaction, God's message is one of peace, not of war. God says, I have grace for you and have peace. And again, it's on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, the, notice how much Paul has emphasized Jesus Christ just in these first three words because he's going to do this this whole book. So Paul's exhortations to obey and his, his commands and his dealing with particular scenarios it's always based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He keeps pointing us to Christ. Notice that he's done this in these first three verses. He says that he's called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's pointing us to Christ. He says that the church of God in Corinth has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Right? Christ is the sanctifier. He says that the saints everywhere call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's their Lord and he's ours. He keeps pointing us to Jesus Christ. And then he says this message, the message which is, quote, grace to you and peace. It comes from God and it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul keeps turning our attention to Christ and that's the right place for us if we want to have good news this morning. And that was the right place for the Corinthians if they were going to have good news. Because if it weren't for the grace and the peace that comes from God, then all there is is doom and gloom for the church at Corinth. All there is is, I guess we just... I guess we're just going to live in this nasty culture and there's nothing we can do except for sin. And there's no way we can ever be pleasing to God. And in fact, why don't we just give up and go back to our pagan lifestyle? They need the message of grace and peace that's based on Jesus Christ. And I think we need the same message. We need the same message that God's favor to us is not based on our performance. In fact, we might have a bunch of wreck and ruin in our lives like the church in Corinth had. And the solution to that is grace and peace from God. And God's grace and God's peace, it will demand dealing with things. Paul is going to deal with things head on. So grace and peace doesn't mean we just act like sin isn't there. When God says, I have grace and peace for you, he doesn't mean I'm going to pretend like everything's fine. What, it, what he says is, my kindness to you is not based on how good you're doing. And the peace I have for you is actually going to overcome trauma and the and the wreck and ruin that's in your lives and that's a message for us this morning so let me give you just a couple ideas for application 
couple so what's even from three verses of a greeting um, that are meaningful for us. They're meaningful for us this morning. They're meaningful for us for how we study the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's some ideas for application. Number one, let me encourage you to consider how you read and how you study God's precious words. Um, so it, it matters how we approach every single verse of Scripture. It, it matters even the methods we use to go through God's Word. Can I just encourage you? Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a letter, and it's meant to be read as a letter. And so even in your private Bible reading, if, if maybe you're hopping here and skipping there and reading a verse here and a verse there, can I just encourage you to, to read your Bible consecutively, read it, in, read it in letter form? That's how it came to us. And I think you'll discover, you'll understand the context and meaning so much better if you'll just read it as it came to us. So just consider how you read and how you study God's precious words. A second point of application uh, we can praise God for his calling in our lives. Right? Paul was called to be an apostle. That was God's calling for him. The church at Corinth, it was called to be saints. Right? That, that, was their, that was their job. That was their role. That's what God intended for them. And it is a glorious thing to be called a saint. Right? So if you're a believer this morning, if you're in Christ, you are a saint. You are a set-apart one. Right? We don't normally call each other saint, but that's what we are. Right? That is a glorious thing. That is God's kindness in his calling, in his drawing us to himself. We can praise him together. Even as we read, man, Paul was called by an apostle. I can be grateful that God gave an apostle to the church to teach us doctrine. And just like the Corinthians, we've been called to be saints. And that should draw praise from our hearts because we are so grateful to be saints. Last two points of application. Can I encourage you to view your sin in light of God's grace? View your sin in light of God's grace. View your sin last week and the week before, and view your sin next week and the week after. View it in light of God's grace. So understand that, that grace does two things for us. One, it covers our sin when we do sin, and two, it gives us the strength to not sin. All right? Grace does both those things for us. It, it, it brings us forgiveness and, and cleansing when we have sinned because God is kind to us. God is gracious to us. But grace is the very thing that actually gives us the power to not sin the next time. All right? So view our sin in light of God's grace. You, you cannot sin more than God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. All right? God's, God's grace is not smaller than your sin. And God's grace is the very thing that teaches us not to sin the next time. So view your sin in light of God's grace. God's grace is strong enough to forgive you, and God's grace is strong enough to keep you from sinning. So view sin in light of God's grace. Lastly, view your troubles in light of God's peace. View your troubles in light of God's peace. God's message is grace to you and peace. And so whatever trouble it is that you're in right now, and there's a variety of trouble in this room, View those troubles in light of the peace that God has to offer. God has, God has a peace that passes understanding. God has a peace, he promised, even in the Old Testament, a peace that will guard our hearts and our minds when our minds are stayed on him. There is, there is a peace that is found from God that we need in our troubles. So view your troubles in light of God's peace and view your sin in light of his grace.
These are just the first words of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Jeremy's going to continue as we, as we move forward into, into next week. You know, I, I think we're going to discover that this book, it will be easy for us to relate to because of our culture, and it will speak directly to us as a church and our need to move forward. And, and God has a message for us even this morning. God's message for us this morning is grace and peace, not wrath and war. Okay, we have a little different ending to our service this morning than we normally do uh, because this morning it is our delight and it's our privilege to uh, welcome Scott Booker in officially to our pastoral team. And so we're going to have a little uh, time of affirmation with him uh, this morning. Uh, As a a pastoral team, uh, we are so grateful um, for the Holy Spirit setting setting Scott apart to be an overseer in this church. Um, like you, we have seen his giftedness in teaching, um, his just ability to help us see the truth of God's word. He's been that for so many of you, even before uh, you were here at our church. Um, that's, that's a gifting from the Holy Spirit that we, have, that we just recognize. Um, we have talked with him. Uh, he's um, considered biblical eldership. We've uh, work through biblical qualifications, and we are just wholeheartedly, as a pastoral team, excited about Scott and um, recommending and ado- endorsing and uh, affirming him um, for this work that God has for him to do. So we're convinced that God has um, set Scott apart to be a pastor with us in our church, and so we're going to let you hear from him for a little bit this morning. Scott's going to come and share whatever he'd like to um, with you all, and then we're going to pray for him, Okay. I didn't know I got to share whatever I wanted to with you. I was told to give you my testimony and also to talk a little bit about um, why I wanted to take on uh, the role of being an elder at Grace Church. So let me give a little bit of, of my testimony. Um, I was very fortunate to grow up in a, a good Christian home. Uh, my parents were were godly Christians. Their life at home was exactly the same as it was away from home. There was, there was a, a model that was set there. Uh, like some of you have grown up in Christian homes, I actually at times wished I had a more exciting testimony. But the older I've gotten, the more I realize that that's exactly what God intends. That's why we spend so much time with our SEEDS program. Children are to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it it saves so many problems later because although all sins can be forgiven and God does, the effects of those sins carry through sometimes and I've been spared from that. Um, I received Christ because of that at a fairly early age, grew up in a church that taught God's word. And uh, when I um, went off to college, I went to Biola University And all of the teaching that I had received became clear to me. It began to all make sense. Um, As a younger child, I received Christ, recommitted my life to him in high school, and then have felt uh, a strengthening in my relationship with Christ as a result of experiences I have had since. Um, In terms of being an elder, For those of you who don't know, most of you do, Um, I'm married, my wife April, and I have uh, eight children, and um, God has blessed us in many ways. 
when I first came to Grace, it wasn't too long after that that they began asking me if I would be interested in being an elder. And to be honest, I wasn't much interested, uh, partly because I had a misunderstanding of what it meant to be an elder. Um, I had been an elder in another church, and it was an experience that did not bring me closer to God. It actually was a jading experience um, in the way that that group of men functioned. And so I wasn't interested in that. But for those of you who don't know what the church believes, biblical eldership means that the authority for the church is entirely from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the, the chief shepherd of every Christian church. And he appoints under shepherds, men who are responsible for the governance of the church. Um, the, oftentimes the model is a pastor with his assistance, but that is not the biblical model that we hold to. We hold to a group of men, a plurality is what it's called, each one with intrinsic authority from God to, um, to be responsible for the church. And that's why we don't talk about elders as much as shepherds or pastors, uh, that being the same word. Um, when I understood that and I was approached again, it was even more scary than the other because the responsibility is heavy. It's a heavy responsibility to be an elder because we are not just making decisions, we're responsible for shepherding the church of God. And I, I've always been, let me go back, when I was in high school, um, they asked me to teach junior high, which I don't think was probably a wise move, but it happened anyways. When I was in high college, I was teaching the high school group. When I moved on and was in the singles group, I went back and I was working with the college kids. When I got married, I was teaching my young marriage class. I've always taught. And because of that, people have always told me, you ought to be a pastor. All the way through high school and college, I was told, you should be a pastor. The problem is, is I, I have, um, those of you who will know me well will understand this, I'm missing some of the pastoral gifts. Um, and my picture was that I would be probably a pretty poor pastor if I was the head pastor of a church responsible for all aspects of pastoring. And I brought those concerns to the elders when I was being asked to do it. And the explanation is very interesting. And the reason that I chose to, to go ahead and go forward being an elder. And that is, there is only one perfect pastor and that's Jesus Christ the reason for biblical eldership a team of men responsible for the governance of the church is that every one of us has places where we are not sufficient in fact lots of those and that the the goal is to bring together a team so that that we become, as a group, more like Jesus Christ in that every single one of the areas that need to be covered are covered. And once I learned that, I said, okay, then maybe this is what God has for me. And we began to pray about it, April and I, and decided that this is what, what God would have. And that's the journey that I took to get here. Let me just say, um, some of you might be surprised that I'm just now becoming an elder um, when all of the events that have transpired here in the last month and a half came to be. 
I was in process of becoming an elder and they asked me to step in and, and take my, my place on the, uh, the group of elders. Um, and so I've functioned as a de facto elder now for six weeks. Uh, it's kind of a joke, but I was told that we would have one meeting a month. <coughs> and in the last six weeks, I think we've had 15 meetings. So I figure I'm good for the next year and a half or so. But, um, but what's been interesting is that God has sustained through that. But what I have seen is exactly what we believe biblical eldership should be. Um, I have never experienced something like this group of men that I'm working with. Um, I'll give you a feel for what an elder meeting looks like. Um, we, we come in and somebody presents a challenge from the Word of God. And then we pray. And it's not a quick, God bless this meeting so we can get down to business. Every man prays. We pray for specific concerns we know about. We pray for wisdom. We pray for, for strength. And we pray that God would be at work there. And we can, that, that may go on for an hour. And then we begin to talk about whatever it is, the issue we have to talk about. The first meeting I was at, I came home and I told April, I've never experienced anything like this. There weren't hidden agendas. There weren't, this is my way and you have to agree. Something was put out on the table and in fact, the, one of the first ones, somebody said something and everybody thought about it for a minute or two before anybody responded. And by the end of the evening, we had explored all the different possibilities and we found the, the group coming to a consensus. So. I know that it's been a difficult six or seven weeks, very difficult, but the, the leadership has sought God's will and has sought to come to an understanding. I, I just have never been a part of anything quite like that. I've been privileged to be a part of it before I'm really a part of it, uh, to be able to tell you that. Let me read to you one thing and then I will stop. Um, out of Hebrews uh, chapter 13. Um, a passage that uh, I think is important. This is a passage about elders and the church, and it's Hebrews 13, 17. It says, um, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will, ha who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have, uh, that, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Um, I don't know what you hear when you hear that passage. You probably hear the first words, obey your leaders and submit to them. But what I hear is the second part, this awesome responsibility that an account will have to be given, that the church needs to be praying for us so that our conscience is clear and that we act honorably. And I, I know that the future may look a little unclear for grace because of where we are, but I think you have in place a group of men who uh, God has set aside and who are, are seeking to do this to the absolute best of their ability. So I am I'm privileged, I am absolutely humbled that, that God would ask me to be a part of this and um, 
I would ask for your prayers uh, that my, my gifting would be used in the way that God intends it to be. So I think they're going to come up and lay hands on me now, I believe so. All right, we're all going to pray for Scott, and uh, I guess I have I have the mic, so I'll start it off. And uh, can I get it back at the end because I need to make an announcement? So, all right, let's all let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your work of grace in Scott's life. I thank you for rescuing him from his sin even at an early age, and um, I thank you that he saw his need of a savior and that. Christ gave him his righteousness. I thank you for your further grace in Scott's life in um, making him qualified um, for this role as a pastor. I thank you for keeping his character um, to match your word, and I thank you for your spirit giving him the ability to teach. And these are your gracious gifts, and, and we thank you as a church that you have given Scott to us. I thank you that your intent is to bless us and guide us and teach us through his ministry. And so I pray for him that he would have endurance and that he would have strength. I pray that he would make full use of his ministry. I pray that you would keep him qualified. I pray that he would pay close attention to himself and to his doctrine. And I pray that our church would know the rich benefits um, of his pastoring work. Um, so that we can give you glory and praise. We thank you for him. Heavenly Father, you are a good God to, to bring Scott to us. And you are a sovereign God in picking him out and choosing him to, to be your child and also to be a, a pastor and elder here. We come before you in, in, in thanksgiving. We also come before you in supplication that we just pray that Scott would take continue to grow to be a, a man of God, more and more in the, uh, conform to the image of Christ. I pray for him and his character to develop. I thank you for the how you've just shown us as a body what a great gift that you've given us through his his character and through his teaching. I pray for his his family also that this experience would be something where he can um, love his his family better and, and shepherd them well. And I pray for us as a body that we would respond to, to his teaching and, and correction at times, that you would use, uh, use him through your Holy Spirit to, to glorify you and make us more like Christ. Amen. Father, I too echo the, the prayers of these men. I thank you for your word and how you have been specific in many areas regarding eldership for qualifications and uh, examples that we see in the early church and in Paul's letters and in, from Peter. And I uh, just thank you for that, for your spirit's guidance. Um, I thank you that, um, that you have already set Scott aside for this and that um, this is more of a recognition of, of the pastoring that we have already seen him um, doing. And um, I just thank you for that. I thank you for the teaching that he has already done and, and how the, your body has already benefited from that. And um, I pray for your hand of protection upon him and that, um, uh, 
that you would watch over him, that this body would faithfully pray for him and the other elders, and that, um, and that you would continue to use him as we meet and uh, make, make decisions with wisdom that can only come from you. Lord, I just pray, continually want to pray for that. Grant us wisdom that we would be humble and that um, you would be glorified uh, in this uh, expression of, of from your word of your body. Dear God, we thank you for the work that you have done in Scott's life. We thank you for his childhood and uh, uh, a childlike faith being placed in you, given from you. We thank you for um, wisdom being taught uh, through those early years. And we thank you for uh, the protection that you provided for Scott's life as he's trusted in you. And Lord, we thank you for your gift of that you have given him for clearly teaching your word. We thank you that it is genuine, that a life is matched by um, the words that he teaches. Thank you for his role that he is, um, uh, that has been given him here in this body. We thank you for the teaching that Scott has uh, equipped us with. We thank you for his family in April and the kids, um, that it, it is a testimony to his to his leadership, Lord, and we just pray, God, that you would continue to protect and bless Scott in, his, in all of the work that you have set apart for him to do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.